In this bonus episode, three segments from this week's C-SPAN's Washington Journal program. First, David Becker of Center for Election Innovation and Research discusses efforts to increase voter confidence in U.S. elections. Then, CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane discusses former President Trump's legal challenges. Plus, national crime analyst Jeff Asher discusses the record drop in yearly U.S. homicides and other recent crime trends. We assume you're here because you enjoy listening to C-SPAN's podcast. If you're a regular listener, please consider supporting our nonprofit operations so we can continue to bring you quality public affairs podcasts like these. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. First, a discussion on election security with David Becker, the head of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. How would you just in general describe the state of election integrity as we step into 2024? Yeah, despite the disinformation, there's been a lot of disinformation over the last several years about how our elections are run. Our elections are more secure, transparent, and verified than we've ever had in American history. And that's objectively true. If you just look at all of the statistics, we have more paper ballots than ever before. 95% of all ballots cast in 2020 were paper, including all of the ballots in all of the battleground states. Paper is important because you can go back and audit paper and recount paper and make sure that the counts the machines might have done were accurate. And that was done in 2020 to a higher degree than we've ever seen before. 43 states conducted audits of of those paper ballots, including all of the battleground states again. And we've had more cybersecurity training and cooperation between the federal government, the state governments, and the local governments than ever before. And then, of course, what we also know is that the 2020 election, for instance, was the most scrutinized election in American history. More pre-election litigation that clarified the rules. About seven out of every eight cases that were filed in, the, in, the, in anticipation of the 2020 election were won by Republicans. And then more post-election litigation with dozens, over 60 cases challenging the results. Courts reviewed all of the evidence that was presented to them and confirmed what was originally determined by the election officials, the public servants all over the country who, look, who run our elections. To this day, we sit here all, over three years since the 2020 election. There's still not been a single piece of evidence presented to any court anywhere in the United States subjected to scrutiny and cross-examination that would cast any doubt on the outcome of the 2020 election. So why do you think there's still so much controversy about the 2020 election. Why is there a lack of trust? And we hear it from callers who will call in and, and say they don't trust the results of 2020. Why is that still out there? There are individuals who have profited a great deal from spreading lies about the election, from targeting the sincerely disappointed supporters of the losing presidential candidate. It's completely normal and understandable to vote for someone who is lost and be disappointed by that. There's no one in America who hasn't supported a candidate who has lost in an election. Um, But to then be targeted repeatedly with disinformation over social media and media and uh, in other other ways to get people angry and divided and deluded about what actually happens so that they'll keep donating. There are people getting rich off of this. They're taking $25 from people's Social Security checks because they're telling them that someone stole their their election, which is just absolutely false. This is from that op-ed in the Washington Times yesterday, and it brings up a couple issues about 2020 that I want you to address. The 2020 election, the authors write, was arguably the least secure in American history. Many states quickly embraced questionable and even dangerous voting practices, such as expanded absentee ballots and unmonitored drop boxes. 
Others allowed ballot harvesting or let voters come in, uh, let the votes come in after Election Day itself. And almost every state saw a large influx of private funding for election administration, paying for voter registration and get out the vote drives in some areas, but not others. Uh, Your thoughts on, on some of those issues they bring up? Well, I I mean, most of that's completely false. I mean, there were some accommodations made because of COVID in every state, red states and blue states, states won by Trump, states won by Biden. It was all done in advance of the election. And if people didn't like those rules that were adopted, they could bring a a challenge in court. And they often did. Those challenges in court, we had more pre-election litigation, as I mentioned ever before. And most of it was won by Republicans. And by the time Election Day came, everyone knew what the rules were. Did everyone like all of the rules? No, they didn't. Of course not. Um, Many people don't like the Electoral College, but that's a rule, and we know it exists. Many people didn't like the rules set by Texas and Ohio that limited drop boxes for mail ballots to only one per county, even huge counties like Harris County, where Houston is located. But those were the rules. That was what the courts decided, and those were upheld. And so these, this disinformation that we continue to see about how the 2020 election was conducted is really unfortunate. The mail balloting, which was necessary due to, of course, the pandemic that we were having, that was a, an innovation that was really brought about primarily by red states, states like Arizona and Utah that had expanded mail voting over time. And it's been proven time and again to be secure. And those ballots were reviewed in every case to see if they were accurate. And we know the results were. So three years later, is there going to be more or less ability to use a mail-in ballot in 2024? Uh, Interestingly, it's about the same. Um, It's probably maybe a little wound down from when at its peak during COVID. you know, putting ourselves back in November of 2020, we didn't have vaccines. We didn't fully understand how COVID was spread. There were a thousand people dying a day due to COVID. And there was a lot of concern amongst voters about going into a place, maybe a crowded polling place and being around other people. We understand that election officials were trying to accommodate that again in red states and blue states, states like Ohio had as much mail voting as states like Georgia did. The outcome was different, but the rules were largely the same. And so I think we're going to see mail voting, um, the, the demand for mail voting, go back down to a somewhat normalized level in 2024 without a pandemic, we hope. Um, but uh, the access to mail voting is about the same as it was in 2020. And that is almost every state allows voters to request a mail ballot or cast a mail ballot if they, even if they don't have an excuse. It's a choice available to voters in almost every state. And that's good. That's, again, states as widely divergent in politics as Utah and California. Explain what the term ballot harvesting means. So ballot harvesting is a term that has been um, applied to the process by which someone might return a ballot other than their own. Um, it's, often, uh, it's often used as a pejorative term. It's often used as a term to make it seem as if something uh, nefarious is going on. In actuality, what it is, is it's, for instance, a wife returning her husband's ballot, taking it out to a mailbox or a drop box, or someone taking their uh, older parent's uh, ballot to a drop box, or sometimes in nursing homes, uh, older residents who have less mobility perhaps, having ballots taken to a drop box. The important thing to remember about mail ballots is mail ballots are verified twice. They're verified at the point where a voter requests a ballot. They have to be on the voter registration rolls. Under federal law, Those voter you can't get on the voter rolls unless you have shown ID. And then they get verified when they come in again, either usually by matching the signature 
or sometimes by matching a driver's license. They are verified twice and confirmed. And those ballots and ballot envelopes are kept for 22 months minimum. So if anyone wants to challenge them, they can. That was Center for Election Innovation and Research's David Becker. Next, an overview of the various legal challenges facing former President Trump with CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. Uh, let's start with the four uh, criminal cases featuring 91 total charges, two federal cases, two state cases. Uh, remind viewers where these stand and sort of the, the roadmap ahead here. There's a huge date one week from today. January 9th is potentially the most pivotal of anything that's happening in any of these four cases. We're talking first about the federal case brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith right here in Washington, D.C., over the alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Of those four criminal cases, that's the first one on the trial calendar. It's actually scheduled for trial two months from Thursday on March 4th. But there's a thing in the intervening week. Next week, the appeals court here in D.C., Here's Trump's challenge to this case. He's arguing that he enjoys presidential immunity and can't be criminally prosecuted in this case and that all the charges should be dismissed and everybody should go home. Jack Smith obviously disagrees with that and argues presidential immunity sounds like a get-out-of-jail-free card for anybody who holds high office to do whatever he or she wants and that it's also just a preposterous notion on its face that somebody can be immune from prosecution simply for having been the president at the time. The appeals court gets into this on January 9th, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For those who care about such things, it's one of the rare federal courts that actually live streams the audio of the arguments. You can listen to this thing on the court's YouTube page and likely hear. And one hour of arguments, we'll see where the appeals court comes out. But their decision, John, could impact the trial date. Maybe it slides later in the calendar. Maybe it stays right there on March 4th. The appeals court could entertain Trump's argument he's immune from prosecution and start the process of dismissing this case or let it move forward. For the appeals court, remind viewers what the, this decision was on the lower court level, the district court level. What is the appeals court taking up here? Yeah, they're taking up what the district court judge did and Trump's appeal of it. The district court judge is Tanya Chutkin, randomly assigned to handle this 2020 election conspiracy case. She tossed aside this argument of presidential immunity and she used the phrase I invoked, that the president doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card for having been the president at the time. Trump appealed that decision from Judge Chutkin. That's why it's now with three judges of the appeals court for the Washington, D.C. Circuit, the appeals court that oversees the federal court here in Washington. The Supreme Court was asked to intervene by Jack Smith and say, forget about all this appeals court stuff. Let's just have you all weigh in. This is headed your way anyhow. And the appeals, uh, the Supreme Court said, this isn't ready for us. Let's let the appeals court do its work at least first. They may or may not take it up after the appeals court rules, but we have a pretty expedited argument. The appeals court set a very nimble calendar. They're having this argument next week, a week from today. That's an ambitious time frame. Their ruling may be nimble as well. You talk about uh, expedited arguments and an expedited calendar. Uh, stepping away from these four cases, the two federal, the two state cases, there's more immediately the, the 14th Amendment uh, primary ballot access decision that the Supreme Court is being asked about, and that decision could come as early as later this week. And that's one where the Supreme Court's being asked to intervene by seemingly all parties involved. You have different states coming up with different rulings on whether Trump should be on the ballot, whether the 14th Amendment and its protections against those who engage in insurrection would prohibit Trump from actually being a candidate on the primary ballots. 
We know the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled he's off the ballot. Maine's Secretary of State, where the election official has decision-making power, decided Trump should be off the ballot. Those are both being appealed, so his name remains for now. But with different states giving different rulings, there are election experts, John, who say the Supreme Court has to weigh in on this. We can't have a patchwork of decisions impacting a federal election. So we're talking criminal cases. We're talking the 14th Amendment cases. What civil cases should we be keeping an eye on? And oh, by the way, there was that civil trial in New York, which just recently wrapped up over Trump's business dealings in New York State. Um, That's still out there as well. We actually know Donald Trump showed up in person at that one, right? That he was there in the courtroom, seemingly viscerally connected to that New York case in a unique way. There's also civil lawsuits filed by the victims of January 6th, right here in Washington, against Donald Trump. Think of the injured police officers. I believe there are members of Congress who've sued him civilly for monetary damages. The appeals court, the same one we talked about having a hearing next week, the appeals court ruled Trump can be sued civilly for damages by victims of January 6th. So that's still out there. And oh, by the way, there are those other three criminal cases you referred to. All these different cases that we're talking about uh, remind viewers how they interact here with the primary and caucus calendar coming up. Let's start again with the election interference case, that federal criminal case here in Washington. It is scheduled to go to trial March 4th, which is 24 hours before Super Tuesday. There is a remarkable week that is shaping up for the first week of March where you have the first ever criminal trial, jury selection in the trial of a former president happening before millions of voters can go to the polls and choose a primary uh, candidate, a nominee for the Republican nomination for the White House. Just almost an unthinkable juxtaposition of historic moments the first week of March. But there are the other criminal cases, right? There's one in New York City, a local criminal case about alleged hush money payments made by Donald Trump brought by the district attorney in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg. Initially, that was scheduled for trial in March as well. And we expect that date to shift because of the, the tonnage of criminal cases that are now on the calendar. There's another federal criminal case brought by Jack Smith. This is the alleged mishandling of classified documents by Donald Trump. Exposure of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate. That's scheduled for trial in late May, but there are challenges between now and then that could very much delay that one. And then there's the Fulton County, the local prosecution with symmetrical accusations that Donald Trump overturned or sought to overturn the Georgia election results in 2020. A broad, sweeping case with many co-defendants. Remember, here in Washington, he is the sole defendant in the case. In Fulton County, he has many um, co-defendants aligned with him. That trial could go on the calendar this year, could delay way into 2024 or 2025. That was CBS News congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. Finally, a discussion on crime rates in the United States with national crime analyst Jeff Asher. I want to read a headline from your website. Crime in 2023. Murder plummeted. Violent and property crime likely fell nationally. These trends stand in sharp contrast with polling showing three in four Americans think crime rose this year. And let's go to the statistics. Here is from ABC News. A look at 2023 homicides in major cities, starting with New York City, down 11 percent, down 16 percent in Los Angeles, 13 percent in Chicago, 11 percent in Houston. And the list goes on in Phoenix, Philadelphia, down 21 percent, San Antonio and Dallas also down 12 and 14 percent. So why is it that Americans think crime rose, but 
numbers show a different story? That's an excellent question. I think it's a complicated question. It's not so easy to say just one factor. I think the starting factor is that we really don't have good crime data. We don't have timely crime data in a way that would allow people to understand what the answer is, because it's an answerable question. Crime either went up or it went down or it stayed about the same. Um, in the same way that you can tell who won the World Series, you can tell who won the Super Bowl, you can tell which teams are doing well, which teams are doing poorly. You can't really do that with crime. And so when we ask people, what are the trends? What do you think happened in crime? They rely on anecdotes because they lack solid data in this data vacuum. And when they rely on anecdotes, it leads to misremembering how many anecdotes you've heard this year, being more biased towards more recent anecdotes than anecdotes of previous years, and being unable to really do that that proper weighing of what happened this year versus what happened that last year. Uh, the other saying, I think it was Chris Hayes um, on Twitter a couple of months ago mentioned that the media doesn't cover the planes that land. There's never a story. There were no robberies yesterday. There were no thefts yesterday. There wasn't a homicide yesterday. There are only stories in the media when these things happen. And so you're asking people to basically take incomplete data, their memory of what they heard in the last year and make a judgment on whether or not something happened or did not happen. And that makes it really difficult. Um, and then finally, there's there's become a hugely partisan shift. 92% Republicans think that um, crime got worse in the last year. 58% of Democrats, which is still the highest percentage of Democrats ever reported. So it's not just a partisan thing, but it is becoming more of a partisan issue rather than a factual, it went up or it went down issue. So- there is incomplete data and there is not timely data for people. So how is it that you do your work? How are you looking? How do you get these, these numbers and how do you do your analysis? So for the murder data, we keep a dashboard of about 200 cities. We're up to 200 cities this year. Um, it really depends on which agencies are reporting and how frequently. At the end of the year, we get a lot of press reporting. So we're able to expand the sample. And we've done the analysis to show that if you have, let's say, 50 cities of data, especially 50 big cities, you're you're going to mimic the national trend, but you're going to be off by somewhere between three and five percent. If you have 150 cities of data, which we have, then you're talking about maybe a one and a half to two percent miss. And so by collecting city data and showing the change from one year to the next, we're in a position to guesstimate what the national trend is with not precision, but with pretty good accuracy. And so what that tells us in our 200 city sample, murder is down about 12 and a half percent. And so if you say, you know, you put your margin of error at between 10 percent and 14 percent, then you're pretty safe in assuming that we saw a double digit decline in murder and murder does not go up and down very much frequently. Usually it's up 3%, down 2%, up 4%, down you know, sometimes 5%. The largest one-year decrease is a 9% decrease in 1996. The largest one-year increase was the absurd 30% uh, increase we had in 2020. So this year, looking at somewhere, say, 10 to 14% decrease is a historically large decrease on top of what in 2020 and 2021 were historically large increases. 
What do you attribute to the decline? Again, all the tough questions this morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it, it's complicated um, is usually the best answer. The, and I'll, I always lead with the caveat that criminologists aren't sure why murder declined in the 90s. So to answer why this happened right now is still very early in, in criminological terms and analytic terms. I think the best explanation, the most compelling explanation is that the pandemic faded in 2022 sort of into the background. And what that did is obviously it removed a lot of stresses um, for most Americans. Obviously, the, the COVID-19 has not gone away, but our relationship with the, the virus has, has changed. And it led to significantly less stress on a lot of Americans. It led to the types of philanthropic and nonprofit programming that had sort of been put on hold in 2020 and 2021. That came back. City and state government services and hiring started again um, in a way that they hadn't in 2020 and 2021 when a lot of those were sort of frozen. And you can also, I think, plausibly argue, argue that police departments that maybe because of COVID restrictions weren't able to police in certain ways were able to do things that they were used to again. And so what we're seeing is um, a sort of return to almost normal everyday life. And part of that is that this surge in gun violence that wasn't necessarily caused by the pandemic, but is helping to be relieved by the lack of the pandemic. That was national crime analyst Jeff Asher. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.